Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Car Chat. I'm here with Mr. James Walker. Mr. JWW, as he is known. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, does it, that? No. It's JWW. That's all right. It's, if you, I think if you say Mr. J. James Walker, and yeah. then I've been trying to, I've been trying to come up with something I can abbreviate this to, you know. And uh, as of yet, I haven't. I never had a nickname at school, and yeah. I don't have a nickname now, and I can't abbreviate my online. You didn't have like a gamer name or anything like that. Uh, Not that it was. Yeah, gamer tell name. <laughs> so my gamer name was Shibby. Shibby. Shibby Net. Shibby Net. Uh, and that and that came off the back of watching Dude Where's My Car, and he says this word. He just goes Shibby once, <laughs> and of all of the uh, sort of dialogue in that film that one word stuck with me and I remember using that as my as my online name and someone had taken Shibby it's spelled S-H-I-B-B-Y so because I was like now an online gamer I call it Shibby Net and that's <laughs> but then when I looked at it for a username as a some sort of online channel it looked like a 12 year old had created it because that's exactly what it was yeah exactly <laughs> I mean this is how Tim has his exactly that is literally how Tim had it wasn't it is this like first e- email address it was like first email address or first eBay name or something yeah and he started his channel long enough ago at least the channel before yeah. he got views and stuff that's it yeah so that's where it was stuck so for so if someone searched Shibinet on a you, network will they come across me. you yeah it would be associated with some like early copy of Rainbow Six or something. <laughs> for sure it'd be on there yeah <laughs> okay, so can you say a little bit more about yourself, what you do? Yeah. That sort of thing. So, um, I guess you would class me as a YouTuber. I don't I don't always like saying that because it does feel like it sort of pigeonholes you somewhat. That's all you do. You, you, yeah. You know, you upload stuff to YouTube. But I think 
um, me and and we have been called that because it's still the predominant uh, online video platform where you upload your content. But of course, it spreads wider to that. I ended up doing presenting and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, um, about three years ago, it'll be three years in December, mm. is when I decided to upload my first video to YouTube. And um, I'm going to wind all the way back and tell you how this started. So when I was at school, towards the end of my school years, so I'm around like 17 now, I started filming me and my friends skiing and snowboarding. Right, and this was we're way before any kind of mainstream social media here. It doesn't feel like that long ago. We're talking 2003, 2004-ish. Would you believe that Facebook wasn't a mainstream thing then? Right, and, and this always sticks with me because I remember hearing this statistic that uh, when the last episode of Friends aired, no one tweeted about it and no one posted it on Facebook because neither of them existed. <laughs> so that's, that always sort of stuck with me, but... That time of my life, I hadn't passed my driving test yet, and me and my friends were into skiing and snowboarding, so on the odd occasion we go up there, we would start filming those things. And then we did pass our driving test, and we obviously it was much easier to step out your front door and go driving than it was skiing, and we ended up turning cameras t- to that. So, And it was pretty basic stuff, just general adventures and laughing and joking in, in the cars. And then I, I left school, went to uni, and joined the real world for 12 years onwards after that. And uh, my line of work then was, I was a textiles engineer and I would, uh, I ended up developing uh, sort of specialist fabrics and one of them allowed you to get a suntan through it. Uh, And I ended up, long and short, uh, putting that fabric into swimwear and calling it tan through swimwear. And we sold that um, around the world, predominantly Online. The only reason I was doing that was because I wanted to afford cars. That that was that was it. I never really had a big passion for it. And I remember when I got into a position where I'd saved up a deposit for my first house, and I blew it all on an Audi R8. (laughs) (laughs) That actually happened. And I remember my dad thinking, "What have I raised? (laughs) This guy's managed to get himself into a position where I'd legit secured a pretty good." deposit for a house but I was quite young I was 20 I think it was 22 22 23-ish and I just blew it all on an Audi alright it was and about the time when we met I it think. was actually yeah we, we hadn't long met and I was sort of dabbling in the car world a bit but I never had my own car to go and go on these proper road trips mm-hmm. or get involved in like car meets and things like that I was always Similar, I guess, in terms to what you would class, I guess, what spotters are now, but this time spotters wasn't really a thing. So buying that car at the time, my friends and family thought I was nuts. Half of them thought I was cool, but underlying they thought I was crazy. And But what it did was it, it, it that car truly changed my life. Now, I want to put out a caveat here and say... This is not the way to go. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend if you've saved up a lot of money to buy a house. It just so happened to work out for me because I managed to get into the car world arguably at the right time. I don't know if yeah. there is such a thing as a right time. But through the car, I met the the woman who's now my wife because we ended up going on this road trip and we, we met on that. Um, yeah, I met yourself. I got involved in the car world even more. And I remembered how much I enjoyed filming skiing and snow boarding at school and how I enjoyed filming this car so I was like you know what I'm in a position now where I'm going to all these cool places 
And I was actually writing a blog. I started writing a blog first. So for about... Nine to nine to twelve months maximum. I started writing a blog first, and it got pretty good traction. It was getting like fifty thousand readers a month, which for a blog about cars was pretty good. And friends of mine would read it, and they were like, "Oh, you know, like imagine what that car would sound like, or what was this like, what was that environment like?" And I quickly realized that without writing a very descriptive essay, which people these days don't have time to read, I couldn't convey what was really going on in these in the situations I would find myself in. I mean, you know what it's like. You come back from Gumball, for example. Where do you start? <laughs> oh, how was it? Yeah, like, how was it? <laughs> it was good. It was good. <laughs> and that was what would happen. I would I would find myself telling the first people that I, I met as soon as I got back. I put all my heart and soul into telling every story about it. And then eventually that story and the enthusiasm would dwindle away because I simply couldn't bothered anymore and it, it eventually got abbreviated to yeah it was good thanks you yeah. know which person was, number 10 <laughs> exactly yeah person 10 it was cool thanks uh, and that was abbreviating one of the most incredible journeys of my life that just happened over the period of seven days and I thought you know what I used to really enjoy filming the skiing and snowboarding stuff why don't I try this now in this world and this coincided with me joining Tim. So for those of you guys who follow the online car world, uh, it's a quite a small world and we're all in a very similar friendly pot. And uh, Tim that we've been referring to is known online as Shmi150. Um, I would say he's the sort of godfather, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> in terms of us sort of uh, new age car media dudes. And um, I went to collect his... McLaren 675LT with him in Manchester at the time I got an F12 and uh, we drove up and Tim turned to me and was like when are you going to start filming cars man I was like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I, and but like it, literally almost within the same week I've been thinking about it you know and he was like why don't you just try it and I thought, I don't know, I'm not sure I've got the time. I was in a completely different business world then. And the nature of YouTube is it kind of rewards regular content uploads. And I didn't think I would really have the time. And he said, look, if there's ever a time to do it, and this is going back, as I say, three years now, things have, things have changed a lot in that short amount of time. But he said, if there was ever a time to launch a, launch a channel, it's when you're collecting a new car. So new car collections back then were like really big deal. And now no one cares. <laughs> and uh, Google a Chiron collection. Yeah, no one cares. So I just so happened to be taking delivery of a new car about three weeks after that. And I thought, I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it. And I started on, on my iPhone. So I filmed the collection of a, it was a 458 Speciali. And it went nuts. It just kind of blew up. And I didn't do anything but upload it now if you did that now I mean even with the following I got now it would get half the views it did then I, I don't know w what it is and that might be a chat for later on in this chat but um, the traction that that car got and that particular video got left me with so many questions from the audience in the comment section that I just felt felt compelled to do some more mm. so people would be like oh we, we want to see this we want to see that you know, and asking questions about things. And every question is essentially a piece of content. So I'd read down this comment list and go, oh, that guy, that's interesting. I'm passionate about what he's just asked. I'll go and do a, a video on that. And it went from one a week to two videos a week to three a week. And um, now I average three a week. Uh, I'd like to do more, but finding 
the time is hard because I, I went down the route of um, the easiest way of saying it is quality over quantity that's not to be confused with it being a Spielberg production it's just that the nature of YouTube when I started was very much your handy cams and your iPhones and it was very choppy amateur type of footage not many people were including uh, music montages to sort of uh, carry people on the journey or to um, uh, establish that you had gone from one place to an- another via a music montage at that time was very much reserved for the bigger lifestyle vloggers uh, think of people like Casey Neistat those kind of guys they were very much using music in transitions to the next part of their day but no one in the car world was and, uh, and I thought well I'm quite late to this party there was like three or four other very well established channels and that was just in England so I was like what can I bring to this that was different and because at that time I didn't have the time to upload every day my I guess strength was well I can only upload once a week at this time so why don't I put some effort into the final edit so when it does go out hopefully people will appreciate it from that angle the nature of it is you could put out one every hour and they still want more yeah. you know and it's and it's got even worse now so since then uh, I try and average like three a week still play on the quality of a quantity thing but it's a fast change in space what does the the day to day of let's say you're trying, you're putting out like right now if you're averaging three mm. a week what does that what does that look like in terms of what you're doing day to day because people say YouTuber and you think I think that's yeah. the, probably the most I think annoying thing about that term YouTuber is it's almost as if the five minute video that they see is like you pointing a camera at yourself for five minutes mm. and then it's just on the internet and that's it like there's no effort right. behind the scenes I wish I wish um so we worked out, so as the, so Mr. JWW was, as you can tell, it was just the first thing that came to my mind in terms of a channel name. So I, what I would say first off was that I never intended this to be anything more than fun, right? As I mentioned, I was in the business world previous to this. And I thought, oh, my goal from this was purely, I just love being around cars and how can I get involved in cars more? So... As the, I would say, uh, seriousness of this space changed from me becoming fun to actually becoming work, we started to calculate things like our return on investment in terms of time. And we, we worked out that our average videos take 15 hours to make. Hmm. And my average video length is 10 to 12 minutes long. So that gives you a snapshot in terms of the time allocation to make a video which is 10 to 12 minutes long. Now, you're probably thinking, well, how does that stack up? The nature of the car game, unfortunately, is that you very rarely are able to step out of your front door and have interesting car content at your fingertips. When you first start, you do, because you've got your own car and your own little world and your mates and whatever, and you go off. And to be fair, for the first three months, you can sustain regular quite insular content like just your world and that's it but very soon you realise that your content opportunities kind of dry up or they become quite samey and you also want to progress yourself as well you reach the ceiling where you're like I can only go so far around here using my own cars and if you're fortunate enough and your content that you're producing catches the eyes of brands you'll find that they generally start to reach out to you and um the next thing, you know, you'll be on a plane somewhere to go and to go and film a car. So every car launch, almost without exception, 
I'm not sure I've been to a car launch actually where I've actually driven in England, um, which is which is mad considering mm. the majority of the space that I operate in is the performance and supercar stuff, of which many are be- are made in England. Exactly. So England, you've got Bentley, Rolls Royce, McLaren, Aston Martin, BAC, one over here, Morgan are here. Um, you, you've got some really cool brands, but. McLaren, I've never done, done a launch in England. Uh, in fact, I just got back from the five, uh, sorry, the uh, six hundred LT launch in Hungary. Uh, Aston Martin's last one was in Austria. Uh, Rolls Royce's one next week is in Wyoming. So they're anywhere but home. Like even if it was in England, it would help. But going back to my point, the original um, thing was that I travel a lot. So uh, this is the flight that I got off recently which was the uh, Aventador SVJ was in Estoril in Portugal. That was my 70th flight this year. Mm. 7-0, right? Yeah. And well, what are we, nine months in? Um, yeah, so 70 flights this year. The nature of cars is they... Your day doesn't conclude until the day concludes, right? Whereas after this podcast, we're going to be done, right? Yeah, we're done. We're going to get done. some food. <laughs> the nature of car stuff is you're very often you're on a journey somewhere and so you can't conclude it until you've concluded so what happens is you'll start your journey in the morning and you'll be with a great bunch of people on a great road trip somewhere and then you go about your day you go about your road trip which will finish at maybe at the hotel that night and then you've had a 12 hour day on the road um, and you've been filming it all day and then you get in and because the nature of YouTube is the content consumption is beyond anything I've ever experienced you'll put out a 15 minute video that you've spent 15 hours making and the first comment is what's next yeah. like seriously like the first comment is oh, I can't wait to see the next one mate just take on take on board the one you've just watched you know what I mean so the the hours allocated to the production of this is so disproportionate compared to the result you get out of it I think if anyone is interested in getting involved in this, um, the amount of people who will come up to me at shows and they're like, oh, have you got any tips? I want to be a automotive YouTuber. And I'm like, cool. And I start talking to them for like 15 minutes and I find out that their passion's cycling. And I'm like, you need to do that, you know, because they see this, they see this polished, 10, 15 minute production, which ultimately is the highlight of any given day. It's the very best bits of that day. And unless you really, really love doing it and you would do it for free for a long amount of time, um, the rewards in terms of financial rewards or invites to just even just to do stuff for free, um, they're very thin and few and far between until you gain a real audience and real traction and you really know what you're talking about. Whereas if you follow doing your real passion, you're going to do it anyway and you might as well take a camera along and then you'll be doing it. It just so happened that I liked cars and that lifestyle looks looks great. But honestly, my life is hotel rooms, aeroplanes, laptops and driving the cars is the small part for sure. It's funny that part of it where... Like the number of times, like we'll be on a road trip and everyone's hanging out and they're like, oh, where are those guys? Like, where's James? Where's Tim? Where's Sam? Whatever. And it's, you've arrived and for everyone else on that trip, that's the end of their day. Like, Mm. now they're just going to have dinner, have some beers and chill and then chill. Yeah. Whereas you've got to edit a video. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I say this like vague stat to people and I can tell in their face they think I'm joking. But every other night for three years has been 2 a.m. Every yeah. other night. That's like, a, like an average thing. You've seen it. I've so seen it. You've seen it. And I would say Tim... Shmi is probably one of the hardest working people I know. I don't mean in YouTube. I mean the I know, like across the board. Like I can't tell you the 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 the, the sort of dedication of life to that. It's not that's beyond work. It's like there is no nine till five. There is no Monday to Friday. It's the content's there when the content's there, and you have to get it out. And Tim has always been a quantity guy. He generally dailies, right? Yeah. So that guy. Seriously, I mean, I can't tell you what it's like, but take your nine to five, your average nine to five job. Um, that's what we work in terms of filming. And then you get it at night and then imagine your boss going, right, now you got to summarize that for me. Every yeah. night. Yeah. So that's... And plan whatever's next. And plan what's, what's next. And then you've got to get on a plane and fly to a different time zone and do it all over again. Yeah. That's... That's pretty much it, which is why you've got to love it to the core, or else you just any sane person just just would like forget this. It is. I I see. You know. Yeah, like I've I've known him for a long time, and I've seen him throughout the the amount of it. And the one thing, he's just a machine, relentless. Like he, and yeah. he does it because he loves it. Yeah. He doesn't do it because it makes money or anything like that. Mm. Like you, you don't do it to make money because the amount of effort. Is obscene, and you could do a lot of other things. Could, yeah. It would take up a lot less of your time and earn a lot more money. Yeah. But it's just it's just that relentless part of it, and I think that's why I, like you were saying at the beginning, you film a bunch of videos about stuff that's easy access to film, mm. and that's that's sort of what I've done really. And then to get that to take that next step is a lot of it's a lot of effort, mm. but it's also a lot of you need other people to sort of accept and want you to help them and stuff. And it's committing, like you said, you've you know you went full on from doing something else to fully committing to mm. YouTube, and like definitely myself at the moment, it's not it's not something I, I've got other things going on. Sure, um, this time, but it just it's just an insane consumption of your time. It's it's totally mad. Yeah. What do you think moving forwards? Like, because obviously it's it's pretty hectic at the moment doing like three videos. Do you, could yeah. you see yourself doing a similar sort of thing in ten years' time, or do you not know? Um, I get asked this question a lot, and so, but the the I'll explain a route to how I'm going to answer this first, as, mm. a, as some context. Uh, there's there's two things. The first thing is I never started this, as I mentioned. I never imagined this situation, mm. right? So, um, looking back to the business world, I would conventionally always have had a goal. And then want to reverse engineer from there backwards and be like, mm. how do I achieve that? Whereas with this, I was like, let's go have some fun at the weekend with some cars. Exactly. Um, and the irony of that was that this gained more traction than the thing I was working harder. Right. And so what I was doing, what I still feel like I'm doing right now is chasing a rainbow. It's like it's, it's, it's beautiful and glorious and full of wonderful things, but what's over the hill, right? And I say that because I've never had a plan. So every day is a unknown new day. Other than where I'm flying to and what car I'm filming, I don't really know what's next. And so it's only in the last, I would say, nine months that I've really thought about this in the, the long term. Um, one of the reasons why I can't give you a proper this is where I'm heading is because it's it's not from my just from my standpoint. It's 
this space and these platforms and this technology changes so quickly that for me to go, oh, what I want to do is this, it wouldn't shock me if YouTube wasn't a thing in three years' time. Yeah. I mean, I people are like, yeah, but YouTube, right? It's like, yeah, but MySpace, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah, but Vine, you know? Uh, I mean, even, yeah, but Facebook. I mean, like, from a personal point of view, I haven't used Facebook in a long time. I wasn't. have it. I, I have it. it. Yeah, but so, you know, things change. There's things with, you know, what what has cultural relevance and impact now won't in a few years' time. And so, what I one thing I know I don't want to be is reliant on a platform. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, live streaming interests me. Uh, the rise of Twitch really interests me. I think, you know, that... So Twitch, for those of you guys who don't know, is a uh, live streaming platform that still predominantly focuses on live streaming games. So as crazy as this sounds, it's other people... It's people watching other people play games live. Um, But what Twitch has recognized is that other people like watching other things live. And for me, the idea of... um, being able to take someone on, you know, in a car live for some hot laps or, I don't know, or just literally streaming my day live. Like, if someone really wants to see what it's like, you know, you can hop in at any hour, jump in and see how that is. Um, I think that is something that I'm interested in. I don't necessarily say it's the future, but it's something that I would like to add on in addition to it. Um, I also think it's it's very important to have your own... IP, your own intellectual property in terms of when you click that upload button to YouTube, it's no longer yours. It's YouTube's. Yeah. Um, you're getting audience and exposure and you're building brand, but you're not building your um, your digital assets. So, you know, you're not getting a mailing list. You're not getting any true membership or fan right. buy-in. Building or, their brand. You're building their brand. You know, you're populating their platform with content and if the algorithm's cool on that day which we'll get around to shortly um if the algorithm's in your favor that day then cool the video gets traction it does well and you get paid okay um but it's certainly not something that you want to rely on like ad revenue was the like this is how you make the money Thankfully, now it's it's working with brands. Um, and if it wasn't for brands, I think the YouTube space would be dwindling fast right now, for sure. It's because it's definitely, I know, because I see you at loads of events and stuff, and majority of the time, not majority, but most things I've seen you at recently, you're working with a brand, mm. and therefore you're getting paid pretty well to be at yeah. an event or something whereas if you were creating content from that event yeah you've got to shoot it all mm-hmm. spend all your own money okay they might invite you for free sure but that that's in terms of time and effort that's nothing mm. and then you've and then you've got to earn off some AdSense which you may or may not get yeah. back from YouTube it, it is it, it's tricky and difficult to maintain I imagine it's really hard to maintain it's 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 tricky as well dependent on the genre you're in so a minute ago I was mentioning how much travel is involved yeah. now even if someone pays for your flights the nature of travel it just costs you money eating mm. stuff um, taxis and things like that things start to add up and the AdSense unless you get a cracking video it, it eats away at it so what you're really 
doing is you're building your audience and your your brand awareness to appeal to working with brands. Um, so on the flip side, I'm super picky with who I work with. I mean, I, I, I turn down 90% actually of yeah. the amount of people because I get approached by like e-cigarettes and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm like, you, I don't smoke. Have you ever seen me smoke in a video? And as if I'm going to be like, hey guys, you know, puff on this. You know what I mean? So you get approached by all sorts of things and you still want to stay true to what you enjoy doing about it in the first place. So if it's to do with the car world and for me, what's important is if a brand helps to facilitate good content Hmm. rather than you're on your journey and you you just wedge in something. I, I think, and I hope the audience appreciates that when you team up with a brand, the content they're watching and hopefully enjoying is as a result of that. It's yeah. not because I'm going to like buy this product. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like we're on this sick road trip with this cool car and then we're going to this hotel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. Yeah, I noticed you, I've, I've noticed definitely with your, most of the brand associations I've seen over time, mm-hmm. you've held off from doing the slightly <laughs> shady ones or because like I had a, a cryptocurrency app okay. message me the other day and said, hey, will you do a story about apps and get it, you know, this thing. Yeah. And, and you see the people do it and I'm in a position where I don't have have yeah. to take those ones. Yeah. But I think long term you definitely benefit massively by not doing it. So you don't get associated with huge just huge flogging stuff to your audience. You if you yeah. can wait out for the big the bigger ones yeah. then you're gonna reap the reward massively and yeah. down the line. I think every every pixel that you publish is a representation of you. Yeah across photo, video, audio. Um, you know, if you're putting a picture up on Instagram and it and it stands out like a sore thumb compared to the rest of your stuff, it's gonna it's also gonna stand out to anyone who might be potentially thinking about working with you. Like one thing I always find fascinating is how many people's looking at my profile right now going like I, my face could be on the on the on the corkboard of some yeah. brand wall right now, and they might be like narrowing me down yeah. with a few people. We could do this with right? him, yeah, yeah, or not. And then that <laughs> that day, I put up a flipping I don't know, like you say, crypto app thing, <laughs> and it's like pull his face off the wall. Like I think credibility's huge, and uh, just just as long as it doesn't detract from the quality of your channel. So if you partner with a brand, and it's like hey, buy this and get 50% off and all of that jazz. I think it's a two-way thing in that, yeah, we'll partner with you, but what are you going to facilitate? What are you going to give back to our audience? Why should Mm. we put your product in front of our audience's eyes? You know what I mean? And for me, if it's like, well, I couldn't do that without you and it's cool, then it's value. You're getting the exposure. We're getting the content. The audience is getting the content. Um and I think if it's very few brands that get that though you would not believe the I mean nightmare the, the, the big brands on the on the forefront from the consumer facing side look like they've got it together and you just assume that they've got it together yeah but a lot of the work that I do that that you know, these guys won't see is that I do and I hate the word consultancy because I don't class myself as a consultant at all but for want of a better word it's consulting with brands and this has all come off the back of a brand will come to me with a great idea we got a great idea all right cool what is it and they tell me the idea and it sucks and it's really bad and 
Because I was in the... Similar to yourself, I was in the position where, thankfully, I'd come from a business background beforehand. So I got a bit of um, savings around me that I wasn't reliant on these brands. So I kind of, off the back of that, you've got this uh, sort of underlying confidence to be like, well, if this doesn't work out, who cares? So I, t- I tell them straight. I'm like, guys, that idea is crap, you know? And it wasn't until that I started saying that to brands that they were like, oh, what should we do then? And I'm like, well, what we could do is this, this, and this. And the next thing you know, you're in for a boardroom meeting and you're presenting <laughs> to various brands. So I won't name names, uh, but I had this... It was amazing. So, big supercar brand, okay. And um, I had a, I had an informal chat with one of their PR directors at a car launch, and he was like, you know, if you were us, what would you do? How would you do it? So we had this chat. And it was kind of informal and whatever. And he was like, why don't you pop in sometime to HQ, and we'll, we'd like to finish this this chat. Like, All right, sounds good. So I bounced an email around afterwards. I'm like, hey, that was cool. I'd love to come in and chat about, you know, your new launch and whatever. When's good? So he gives me this date. I turn up. And because I thought it was just me and me and him, I was like 15 minutes late. And I was texting him directly via WhatsApp because I'm on yeah. good terms with this guy. I'm like, oh, I'm just a bit late or whatever. I'll see you in a minute. Yeah, cool. So I walk in and he takes me up to the boardroom. And there's probably, I don't know, maybe 16 people sat there. <laughs> 16 people sat there and a screen a massive screen where they'd skyped some dude from another department in another country right and they were like all right james is here uh, he's now gonna uh, debrief you all on the marketing strategy for this quarter what and i'm like what what do you mean <laughs> he's like yeah you know we had some great talks about the social media strategy and we thought we'd get him in and and we we'd talk about you know how would you do things in-house and uh, I'm like, oh, I'm in the deep end here. And I think that's one of those moments where you either like, sorry, guys, I'm not here for that. Or you just grab it by the scruff of its neck yeah. and embrace it. And I chose the option to grab it and see how it goes. And um, yeah, that that worked out great, actually. So it, most of the time, it's it's actually cost savings. It's saving them a huge amount of money because big brands still approach things from we have to go we are this we are this brand we have to go big and they're so used to going big and the nature of social media and just uh just online content creation is that i think people have um there's an inner reluctance to accept anything too polished from a brand because you just feel like it's an advert and no one's going on to Instagram or YouTube to get sold to. So I'm looking at all the projects that they got in the pipeline and they were spending like millions of pounds on these like Spielberg type productions for, you know, like a 30 second ad for this new car. And it was going to be sponsored link and all of this sort of stuff. And, uh, and I'm looking at this budget and I'm like, say you halve that budget and split it over, I don't know, 20 other pieces of content that were filmed on like a Sony AR2 or 3 yeah. you know rather than an Arri or a Red you know and you didn't need a full on production crew um, I was like you know ha- have you guys looked at any of the data that shows where people are consuming this stuff and uh, we brought up their YouTube channel 
because then they're filming like eight k. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> like to give it literally to give it some context. Um, I think it was Avatar was filmed on the same camera. Yeah, right. And this was for their like online campaign. So to to have a setup like that, you're talking a team of like thirty people, and um, like hair and makeup, road closures, the lot. And we look at it, and they're like, oh, yeah, it turns out uh, most of our audience, they're watching it on an iPhone uh, 720p yeah. you know, on a screen that's like three inches big. I was like, you don't need that 8K thing, you know? And um, it was there was just a huge amount of cost savings there that allowed them to, like, turn it around so much quicker. And, you know, like, I, I would show them the stuff that I film on, and they, they thought I was joking. You know, that's it it's like, funny it was like you didn't make that on that I'm like yeah I did you know it's, and you uh, watch it's fascinating if you go to someone that's so you shoot all your stuff on a handycam which is mm. super super budge great for shooting yeah. like, super stabilised just works and I yeah. envy the small amount of gear you and Tim does the same carry yeah. around because I carry a bit more for yeah. taking photos but you you look at the production that some people pull out of but the equivalent sort of stuff that I'm sort of carrying around, yeah, like an A7 or A9 yeah. or Panasonic or whatever, maybe something like Unolson or whatever, yeah. on a daily basis pulls out of Seriously, an yeah. SLR and whatever. And it, yeah. you look at that and go, oh, yeah, I think that's good enough. That's it's plenty enough. Like, and it's plenty enough unless it genuinely is going on a cinema screen, or you're maybe you're going to do a, a national TV campaign yeah. or something. Then fine. And I think if it's a, it's funny watching some of the smaller brands do mm. things. Because you see, let's say someone, I don't know, like DJI, mm. they're not a small brand at all, <laughs> but they, for their recent drone stuff, they have done some big production things. But the thing that everyone sees, whether it's mm. like GoPro or whoever, mm. is the launch day. Mm. They do their launch event with like 50 people watch. And then, you know, Casey Neistat will talk about it and it'll get 5 million people. Yeah, exactly. And that, they will have just yeah. sent... I don't think GoPro necessarily pay Casey anything. No, they just send him free products. They just send him free stuff and he does a video on it. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing all the production. He's paying mm. for all, all of it. Mm. And five, ten million people will watch it. Yeah. And they've just sent for him sure. a camera. Yeah. Like, you don't yeah, need yeah, to spend mad. Mad, 500 grand yeah. on a shoot for yeah. a 20 second clip. Yeah, I know. It's pretty crazy stuff. I once did, um, at the beginning of last year, I did a 360 production for Jaguar. And... They used, you know, those GoPro mounts where there's like six clips. Mm. You mount six GoPros into yeah, one yeah. clip, and then they have this, this software afterwards which stitches it together and creates your 3D yeah. thing. So, you know, this is a consumable product. You can order it off Amazon right now. It's, a, it's quite expensive for GoPro. It's like two yeah. grand's worth because you've got like six GoPros and this stitching software. And um, yeah, I turn up on this shoot, and that's what this is. This is Jaguar's 360 mm. production, and. Um, you know, it's it's like hair and makeup, road closures, health and safety. Uh, you've got this massive tour bus for all of the crew. Um, and then because it's uh, now like an official crew, you've got the like union in who now have to like have catering teams in. Yeah. And before you know it, you feel like you're on the set of like the next Mission Impossible. And the thing we're filming with, I can fit in my hand. I know. And yeah. it's... And the clip we ended up doing was three minutes long, and I said, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Wow, man! Like these guys do it different, you know? I, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but you can't help but think there's a lot of cost savings t- to be done here, which could go into so much more content 
production yeah. right? and you get all these these companies in the middle of the brand and you mm. and they have a team of 10 people and, and I've had yeah. you know and yeah. you, you literally must have it all the time where you're talking to someone and they're so and so is providing X, Y, Z that you can do, and the person in the middle is the ones that are sort of sorting it out. But they yeah. don't really have a clue either. Like yeah. they have less of a clue Absolutely. than anyone about Jeez, what's so. going on. And then there's ten of them, and you say, "Well, why don't we do this?" Which is yeah. probably you've come to me because you like what I do. Mm-hmm. So how about we do this? And they're like, "Yeah, well, we'd actually like you to do this." And then they have a board yeah. meeting about yeah. it or whatever. And you're like, just, <laughs> "Can we just remove these people? Take those people out, out of the equation?" And then yeah. it's sort of it's just crazy how it all. I mean, it's it's what happens with bigger companies, and you have to have mm. sign offs and all that sort of stuff. But it's funny how some people have approached the YouTube. Well, I'd say that's how magazines have sort of done car videos. Really, they've mm-hmm. they've sort of taken it from a massively crazy high production value point when I think yes. time goes by when they did videos they didn't do very often yeah. and they had quite a big budget yeah for sure. whereas now there is no budget mm. and I think the, you, you get some of the people that shoot for that sort of thing come and see yeah. what someone like yourself does yeah and they're like wait hang on a minute you film it all yourself you edit are the person on it you <laughs> yeah. edit it all yourself yeah. you publish it on your all yourself you do everything you do everything, everything you're not paying yeah. anyone Anything. for any part of it that's right yeah and it works but tim tim was a really good one i remember he's always i've always sort of chased him because i love stuff that looks amazing yeah and from the beginning i was always like come on like just let's just put the <laughs> let's put a little montage in there yeah. or that sort of thing and he was from the beginning was like if it doesn't make financial sense no and it doesn't make it and more important it doesn't make a difference to the audience yeah and he worked out it was like it doesn't yeah, for sure what I shoot yeah, on absolutely. it's about the content really yeah. that matters it doesn't matter right. whether it's in 8k 100%. or 1080p yeah because yeah. it's compressed as well right? for sure I think so I saw a, a recent example of something where I thought okay these guys have used this for a purpose right so did you see I know you did see it because we, we spoke about it, but Audi recently did a, an advert which didn't include a car and it was Candide Thovex or Thovex mm. or whatever. Thovex, yeah. Thovex. Uh, skiing everything but snow, Ski right? Ski films. Ski films, right. So for those of you guys who haven't seen this advert... Um, You're Audi, one of the four people on the planet. That yeah, happens. so Audi did this, this advert with a professional skier where he skied out of season down like the Great Wall of China and through forests and, you know, down uh, sandstone cliffs, anything that, anything but snow. Uh, and it was, but it, but it was shot that in, in a way that was so incredibly beautiful that I could appreciate the payoff in the investment in the gear required for that particular production. Yeah, it was like some sort of National Geographic It was insanely, scenic. like, I was jealous watching it, how good it was. I was like, this, I would have loved to have been on the behind the scenes of that just to see how it, it, was all, unreal. How it all happened. Um, and that's an example of, okay, I could see the justification of the, the equipment you use there. But the application of it, like, you know, there's one thing having it on set and there's a totally different approach like using it. Like, I know what they filmed that with was the same thing that I was filming with on this other particular production. Um, And the results are very different. You know, the results are very different. So I think it's it's all to do with the vision and the production. But if you can get across your message in a beautiful enough way, like, you don't have to, like, go to, like, handicaps. But one tier down is, like... 
almost ninety percent of the cost down. It's huge. Just but you can put some beautiful glass on a great camera body, you know, and you can make some fantastic stuff with the right editing and grading. You don't have to go crazy. Yeah, and I think when you approach, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's, it it must be really difficult for a production house that employs. Let's say you go to someone big and they, I don't know, let's say they employ 50 people yeah. that they've got to film and whatever. And you go to them and say, hey, mm. we've got 10 million to make this video. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they go, oh, I think we can do that. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you work to 10 million. It's so true. Like if, if, so if, true. if someone, you know, when you're a kid yeah. and your parents give you some sweets and they give you 50p, yeah. I'm sure you can't yeah. probably buy that buy much for 50p now, anymore. Yeah. But, you would spend you get 50 all of that. You <laughs> get 50, 50 one or whatever. You For wouldn't sure. give a 10 and be like, I'm just yeah. going to give that back to you in case you want to give it to me at another sort of time. <laughs> for sure. So it must be super difficult for the... I can see why the production house, it makes no sense for them really to spend any less no. than, it, than they can. And they'll do an amazing job of justifying to you why you need it. Yeah. And you need, you need and it. And I've had this chat with production companies. So I've, I'm often the presenter on a job. So I'm like working for a brand who, who, like, who has commissioned an agency. And I'll sit down at the table at the end of the production. And they all want to like a debrief. And how can we do things better? So again, the same other mindset. Because I'm like, I don't... You know, like, I love being part of this, but we can we can improve things here. Uh, so I just, like, have it out straight in front of the client. I'm like, what? Why Why did we have the ARRI? Why were we shooting on, on the red? Like, literally, to set up an ARRI takes four people. Yeah. To set it, to set it up. It's crazy. And so what you'll find is a, a shoot which could have been three days is five. It's five days. Yeah. Um, and the infrastructure... T- to support that extra team and everything else I'm like god damn and this is going on YouTube you know so I sit there and I'm like guys we could be so much more productive we could be cost efficient we could you know have more time for when say someone's getting their their take wrong maybe you know there's more time to allow for error you know which happens a lot and experimentation yeah experimentation or why don't we try this angle this time yeah. or, or that storyboard like that angle that we envisaged wasn't that good let's set it up a different way well with you know like an A7R you could set it up in 20 minutes or, or less yeah with an ARRI it's an hour and it's scaffolding like it's scaffolding to mount this thing to a car so it's like a full on rig job um, and so you know I'm not I'm not slagging off the the procedure I'm slagging off the application. It's like... If it doesn't need it, don't If it doesn't need it. it, why are we... You know what I mean? It's... Because yeah. I think when I'm... Let's say when I'm taking photos of something, if it's, it's been super planned, and mm. you basically, like, I'm going to shoot four shots, mm. and you can come in and you pre-plan everything, whatever, and it turns out, and it's, it's good, and it's, it's exactly as you planned. But I think some, a lot of my favorite shots, or sometimes, is you're there, you've, you've got the five shots, and if you're... Uh, definitely a catalyst for this is if you have to travel like you say if you have to travel a lot travel, like yeah. so my camera gear when I was just shooting stuff based in London driving somewhere yeah. I took tons and tons yeah. of gear as soon as you have to carry it around for a day or <laughs> leave put it, it on the boot put it in in between the cage in a GT3 RS to get it in the back and you have yeah. to take it in and out every time <laughs> you go oh do I really need this massive body and that's why yeah. I've now got smaller gear and stuff like that but then you just like you get stuff done super fast yeah and whenever I've I've loved working with other photographers who are super proficient and you've gone 
oh, they're just they're just done. They're like you say, uh, yeah. and the, the client almost goes, they go like, is that it? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, that's it. But then you have time to mess around stuff. and do the other stuff yeah. and get really sure. creative because yeah, you've yeah. got the shots you need yeah. and then you can go mess it around. It takes a lot of pressure off and and hassle as well. Like setup is such a pain, you know. Yeah. But to be able to just get your camera and be like, right, where are we on? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Cool. it's cool. Anyway. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, yeah. All of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> to bring that. it back more yes. to sort of cars, which... This was that's what we're about, yeah. You said you were on the 600 LT launch. I was. Last week. Have you launched your video on that? Yeah, that's out. The embargo lifted like two days ago. Okay, so you can talk about it. I can talk it. all about it. Yeah, for I, sure. Fire, that car to me is like a, is a super interesting... It's the not necessarily the first McLaren that I mm-hmm. found interesting. Yeah. But it, I'm really like, ooh, ooh. I know exactly. That, that could mean. be... Like, yeah. It might be a great car. So Tell me about it. Okay, so when I drove the the 570S for the first time mm-hmm. where was that that was in Tenerife somewhere close to home exactly somewhere nice and close to home <laughs> you know no five hour flights involved or anything or different time zones that's something else that completely messes with you time zones um, particularly when you've got to present on a camera and you look like death yeah that's why we wear sunglasses all yeah time. anyway it's literally yeah anyway so um, the first time I drove the 570S I was at the time I was a, a 675LT owner yeah and I got in this car and I drove it half a mile and the first thing I said to myself was imagine when they do an LT version of this Mm. that's two years ago now and um, lo and behold they bring out this 600 LT so I'm like super excited to try this car and I actually was really honoured because I uh, McLaren asked me to present the launch of the car at the Goodwood Festival of Speed so I was in the commentary box when their uh, one of their development drivers drove it up the hill and then they gave the car to me I was the first person outside of McLaren to drive that car first which was incredible which is hilarious because the driving impressions came up like like the embargo was lifted two days ago yeah so I, my video is like 15 minutes long and I gave driving impressions two months ago mm. <laughs> so I'm not sure I think they kind of just overlooked that um, <laughs> but it's in my video I say the car is like 675 LT all over again and it really is just like that only it's in a more modern package it's not actually a smaller car people think the 570 is a smaller car it's it's, it's actually not a smaller car uh, the way that the car has been designed makes the packaging of it look smaller and I think there's a lot of um, assumption that it's smaller because it's the baby McLaren it's the, yeah. it's the entry level yeah, true. but it's not a smaller car it's the same size as as uh, as what the uh, sort of uh, 650 was based on was, so, yeah. so is 12 the 720C bigger than the 650 or a similar size um, I actually don't know I'm not sure it feels more spacious inside so maybe it's slightly wider I, I actually the, don't know yeah I know the tub's yeah. different though the tub's different um, mm-hmm. but 600 is I mean and I said it in my video I wouldn't be surprised if it's car of the year it's one of the few modern day cars supercars or sports cars depending on where you want to place it that's a different topic because McLaren class the 600LT as their sports series which as the name suggests is a sports car yeah it's it's faster than everything like it's just it's yeah. like it's quicker than a 488 uh, it's sub three to six. It's like two point eight to sixty, and this is their sports car. And it's definitely supercar. priced as a supercar. It's definitely priced as a supercar. Yeah, 
Um, but for me, it's one of the few turbocharged sports come supercars that brings it to the GT3. Mm. So the the great thing about McLaren is right now their their uh, production output is small enough that allows them to do a few um, a few things that would otherwise be governed by EU rules. Okay, so they're still able to maintain a hydraulic steering rack in their right. cars. So their uh, feeling, their steering feedback is fantastic. It's still, mm-hmm. it's still lovely weighted. It feels like you've got that organic connection through it. Um, but for me, the thing that's always lacked with, uh, I don't want to use the word normal McLarens, but their non-LT-focused drivers' yeah. cars, is that there is... Um, historically been a lack of uh, soul and I guess ultimate connection with the driver I don't mean steering connection I mean emotional connection yeah, uh, in terms of the way that it stimulates you right um, and what they've what they've done with the 600 is they've taken the, the 675 LT ethos and everything that they've learned from that uh, which was like critical acclaim like that was that was the car where everyone was like right McLaren's finally got it mm. and they've taken that formula and they've dribbled it all over 570 and they've pumped it up to 600 PS not 600 horsepower so it's just shy of 600 horsepower uh, and they've stripped another 100 kilograms out of it now another 100 kilograms out of a car that's already conventionally lightweight so the full it's got a full carbon tub so it's already a fairly light car uh, it's made it faster than a 675 LT right so all of a sudden what was last year's ultimate super series car yeah. is now almost obsolete you know you're like you're now your entry level car is is a more capable car than it it's mental that In 18 how. months like, yeah yeah ludicrous it's crackers um, but what, what's what's really really cool? So the signature th- uh, th- character trait from an LT was these fantastic whip cracks on the up and down shift, mm. which you didn't get from their standard their standard cars. They're heavily turbocharged, so the sounds are quite muted. The LT they managed to get these amazing whip cracks, and like if you if you were doing it in a tunnel, it sounds like someone's dropped a grenade out of the back of the car. It's been brilliant experience. What they've done with the LT the 600 LT is that they've moved the exhaust from the uh, bumper area basically from the back of the car and they've brought it about three feet closer to your head on they are on top of the engine bay so if you're familiar with the top of a, a 918 Spider, how Porsche um, placed their exhaust outlets it's very similar what they've also gone and done is part of the weight saving is making thinner glass much thinner glazing so the okay. glazing behind your head is really thin so all of a sudden you've got these cannons firing, like, I mean, they shoot flames. The cannon firing exhaust three feet closer to your head with the glass like half as thin. And the sound is just phenomenal. Like you just, every shift is like right behind your head. In your head, yeah. Yeah, and they've stiffened up the engine mounts and the transmission mounts. So any vibration you get through the, the you know, through gear shifting, through engine vibration comes through the tub so much more. The seats that you get in are sports seats, so they have less padding, more connection with you, they're tighter with you. So all of that vibration from stiffer engine and transmission mounts is like channeled through your spine and it's great. And you can get the like lightweight center seats for it. 
my personal opinion on this is I think it's a shame they've done that because they launched those seats on the Senna, which is yeah. their 800 grand flagship hypercar. And the next car they launched is their baby car with the same seats, you know? And it's like, and they, 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 they did this massive song and dance about these seats weighing like 3.8 kilograms and they do this phenomenal like uh, pioneering balloon forming carbon exercise to make these amazing seats and you can have it in the baby car. You know, so... I think it's a shame, but if you're going to buy a 600 LT, you can get the seats from the Senna they look in cool. this core. They look amazing. They hug you incredibly well. Um, and again, add to this crazy uh, weight saving. And everything that was aluminium is now titanium. Uh, all the wheel bolts and stuff are titanium. There's carbon everywhere. Um, but just the driver feedback is just brilliant. It's a really... I would imagine down like a British B-road, it'd be mega. Yeah. Now, I only drove it on a track. So I drove it on uh, the Hungara ring which is a Formula 1 circuit so it's a big fast track with pretty smooth curbs yeah. so I did ride the curbs pretty heavily um, and it felt really compliant the biggest thing and where most of my appreciation for the car came from was and, and credit to McLaren they gave us a 570S said off you go round the track and immediately when we came back in, I mean, immediately stuck us in the 600 LT. That's good. The difference was incredible. Like, you wouldn't imagine it's the same plant based on the same thing. It's just an amazing feedback. Like, you know, steering rack is quicker. Brake pedal, like the master cylinder is so much stiffer. The brakes are from the 720. So you've got their entry-level lightweight car with the brakes from their super series car with a, with a much harder master cylinder so you can really anchor on it uh, and you got full harnesses and it's whip cracks and fire and stuff all over the place um, I think it, I think it's it's a it's probably their best car I think it's the best car they've probably ever yeah. made actually yeah. it, it looks it's, it's, it's the first one it's hearing you describe it and talk about it mm. it's the first one that makes me sort of think oh maybe maybe mm. there is a new car that's interesting because yeah. yeah. I've seen over a period of time, I'm always like, okay, what would I replace? XYZ, GT3 RS4. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's sort of analog and whatever. And then part of me goes, it would be quite nice to have something that's paddles and, sharp, and quick and yeah. ultra modern and stuff. But the idea of something that's just fast yeah. and ultra modern doesn't seem that, <clears throat> Not that interesting. But when you're like, it's fizzing with involvement. Yeah. McLaren generally, I would say, it's not undertired. Mm-hmm. But versus, let's say, a Porsche, yeah. they've got much smaller tires. Yes. So that six hundred, like, that six hundred horsepower, is going to burn that rear rubber. It's playful. Quite yeah. easily. It's playful for sure. And you'll be able to like, just balance yeah. it at all yeah. speeds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like. Sounds I mean, like you can turn it all off as well. I mean, the, you know, they've they've engineered some some playful traits into it. They've got this. They literally have burnout mode. Yeah. Where you you like turn all of the traction off and I think you put it into like sport and you just mash the throttle and it it rolls gradually for like 30 <laughs> yards and then all the boost just gets delivered at once and it just goes boof and all the, the rear wheels just like explode and you just lay these massive lines of rubber out of the pits so it's wicked it's you know? pretty hilarious it's, it's, it's a cool car what it isn't is naturally aspirated that's yes. There's no getting around that. You know, it is what it is. I think where it lacks in, uh, you know, engine drama, they've done a very good job of making up for it with the exhaust and putting mm. it by your head and making it pop and bang. I noticed when I went in the 918. Yeah. The normal 918. Normal 918. Yeah. Like a 918. <laughs> yeah. 
from outside doesn't sound very loud at all. You get in the car you get it, it's and it's unreal. It was, it's yeah. definitely one of the loudest sort of yeah. engine note experiences I've had because it's that right it's by, like by bolted head. to the back of your head. Yeah, it is. And yeah. it's coming out behind your head. I mean, I have a screenshot. I was, in fact, I was with you. We were in Bahrain. And some guy takes me out in his 918 Spider, and we're going along, and I'm looking back at the footage afterwards, and there's these big flames <laughs> sticking up from behind my head. I'm like, wow, like, that's the craziest thing. Um, but for me, it's important because we don't need any of these things, but we want them all. Right. Yeah. And all of these cars and all these purchases are driven from the heart. Nothing to do with any form of rationality at all. So the importance of sound... It cannot be overlooked because it's one of the greatest, most important um, senses of connection between you and the vehicle. So we go on about flames and pops and bangs and overrun like little kids. But actually, when you want the fizz and you want the engagement and just the connection of like you drew my GT3 the other day Hmm. and we were saying on the downshifts, it's a bit muted. And that connection of yeah I've just initiated that downshift and you know the rev band you're in when you become a familiar and in tune with a car you know the rev band you're in without even looking at the dials you feel it through the revs and you hear it and I think without that you lose something right so flames are important man (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) that's what I'm saying yeah yeah it's funny whenever you see uh, I think the last engine made Will be a natural aspirated engine. Let's here's hope. I'm just just because yes, okay. that's the what. As much as it's great having more power, yeah. If you could have a car that weighed nothing, yeah, you you don't need tons of power, and therefore you'd have don't a natural aspirated. Yeah. Now on natural aspirated engines, yeah, and <laughs> fizz factor, yeah, you have bought yourself, yeah, a pretty fizz factor car. Super fizz, yeah, man. <laughs> Super fizz factor. So. um... I managed to get my hands on a, on an F12 TDF. So the interesting thing about this is um, there's very few cars these days that I haven't driven or haven't experienced. Mm. And certainly, generally, before I buy something, I've generally driven it to know that I want, I yeah. definitely want it. And that's not necessarily a test drive. It might be like a press launch or whatever. You know, yeah. in fact, I don't think I've ever gone into a dealer and gone, "I would like to test drive this car." It's because I've been out with a mate who owns one or it's something quite, like. It's that. quite difficult to do, actually. No. It's really difficult to do. It's because of what we were talking about, like the rise of this social media thing and all these spotters and whatnot. And like, let's face it, there is an element of this world where people are just showing that they own these cars, these cars or, you know, whatever. So I guess from a dealership point of view, they're like, is this guy just wanting to put a picture up on Instagram or is he legit? Anyway, separate topic. Um, so they launched the F12 TDF, like it was 2016. And um, I didn't have the money or the profile at the time to A, afford it or B, get invited to buy it. And But I always knew, for some reason, I just knew that this was a car that I wanted from day one because the ethos of it, okay? So they call it the TDF because it's a, an abbreviation for Tour de France. Now, his- Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Historically, cars that raced in the Tour de France were race cars for the road not road cars that you could take on the track yeah. now there is a quite a distinct difference so you know what a race car is like, like so you know I was a, a speciali owner for I don't know in fact I've had two so maybe three years right and um, the ethos of that car was it was a 458 that they'd stripped out and made track biased yeah. the approach of the TDF was if we were going to make this a a track car, but it needed number plates, how would we approach that? And then they probably softened it down a bit more um, because it, it was ultimately only a road car. It's a road car. Right? It, it's a road car, but the TDF historically was a race car. Yeah. Why I'm setting up this story is to set context as to why this car is very different from the other limited edition special lightweight series cars. So... If you look down the components list of the F12 TDF, the engine components, if you were to replace a piston or a tappet or something, is from the XX program. Right. Whereas the Speciali is just a 458 engine. And everything else that they've ever made is only ever a production engine component. The TDF components are all XX program components. So for those of you guys listening, wondering what I'm talking about when I say XX program, uh, Ferrari developed this program where, in fact, it's genius, really, but <laughs> they developed this program where they they basically make wealthy clients pay for the pay for the development on their own cars and then sell it back to them. <laughs> not even allowed to keep the car. You're not even allowed to keep the car. But what you are, what you get is if you're of... Um, a high enough profile and you've got enough money to get involved you can buy into and experience the latest greatest Ferrari technology before it makes it into any road or race cars even okay and because they're like complete prototype cars they don't go into any race series so it's literally a posh track day car but what they do is they test and develop and trial loads of different components on these cars which for all intents and purposes are Racing cars, really. Yeah. And it's called the XX program. Um, and it's the first road car from Ferrari that had XX engine in it, right? So it's not completely XX engine, but the majority of it is XX components. And what that gives you um, is a very distinctly different feeling in the car to if it was like a lighter F12. Yeah. So uh, the big differences are, um, so the injectors, um, so the the tappets, um, they're all titanium, but they've also swapped uh, what were hydraulic components for mechanical components, which allows it to rev higher. So it revs up to pretty much... Nine thousand, um, but the f- the 
Christ, the emotion in that engine is unlike anything else I've driven road car-wise that is that still managed to retain any form of sophistication at the same time. Yeah. So what, what, this is something I haven't ever experienced, but uh, typically when you fit a twin-clutch gearbox to an engine, they are wonderfully responsive and dynamic and like super smooth and they don't interrupt with the like f- the uh you know the application of power from the engine t- to the drivetrain yeah. it's almost a tone change right it's yeah, yeah, yeah. whacked through gears um <clears throat> what they did with the tdf they still have a twin clutch gearbox but instead of making it seamless they also engineered a slam into it as well so imagine it shifting like a PDK, but slamming like an Aventador. It's mental. It's just nuts. So you've got this amazing... It almost feels kind of sequential-ish, you know? So when you pull on these paddles on the upshift, there's still no, like, hesitation in power and there's no uh, physical um, weight transfer change in the car like there would be in a a single-clutch gearbox. But it delivers it with a real thwack that lets you feel so connected to it. And then under heavy braking on downshift, it's pure race car. It's just pow, pow, pow. It's got these amazing whip cracks. And the response, the relationship between the engine and the gearbox is just one of the most sublime feelings. Um, I mean, I've, I've spent some time in a La Ferrari, and even that doesn't have as much drama. The La Ferrari is incredibly capable and fast. It doesn't, it doesn't sound as loud as the TDF, and the drivetrain is doesn't have that that like whack that mm. whip crack there's something about the tdf and if you speak to journalists who have driven this car they are like this thing isn't the kind of thing that you just hop in for a drive like you really have to approach it with a bit of respect which in this day and age of modern day supercars is pretty rare you know it doesn't happen it doesn't happen like it's very easy to get in a, like a modern day supercar now and just drive the nuts off it and be yeah. and it'll flatter you and be fast I haven't found that with the CDF. It's kind of like, if you're really not on it, it doesn't flatter you. It doesn't reward you unless your inputs are calculated and smooth and you're really driving it with a sense of purpose. You're not just in it to play chill, right? And um, it's got two 7.5 section front tyres. That big? That's, that's huge, right? So to counter the ridiculous front-end turn it's got, they made the rear wheels larger to put larger tyres on and then put on rear wheel steering. So it was the first Ferrari to have rear wheel steer. And what what that does is um, it gives a, a virtual shorter wheelbase. So when you're turning, the car will... Sorry, the rear wheels will turn very slightly in the opposite direction from the front wheels, giving the effect of a shorter wheelbase, making it a very agile car. And this has been done on lots of cars, but when you apply it on a car that is a, a quite a long wheelbase, uh, it's exaggerated quite a lot more than it is on something like a GT3, mm. particularly if you're familiar with an F12, right? So if you spend time in an F12 and you approach an F12 TDF, you have in your, your GT brain, your Grand Tour brain, because you walk up to it and it's long, the long bonnet and the yeah. engine's at the front, and you think F12. And then you get in it, and the steering rack's like a speciali, and the response is like, and it turns like a speciali, uh, but it's got the, the front end grip of something with like stupid downforce, even though you're going like 50, 50 miles an hour. Um, and so your inputs change, even though 
you're in a car which is a Grand Tour and it's quite big. Uh, so on the road, you're you're really big, but the agility uh, makes the car kind of shrink, uh, sort of around you a bit. It kind of shrinks around you, and after you've found your like rhythm with it, you could thread it down a tight B road. Um, and then they've calibrated the traction control systems to be far less forgiving than in a standard car. So even in race on the TDF, I find it's almost like CT off was in hmm. the Speciale. Oh, okay. There's a lot more play in it. A lot. Um, so it plays around a, uh, like a lot. <laughs> like a huge amount. Uh, thankfully, it's got a super fast rack to catch it because yeah. when it goes, like, it really goes. Um, and what I really like... Uh, one of the reasons I fitted an exhaust to my F12 was because unless you were going really quickly in it, you kind of you didn't you didn't hear it. Like you no, didn't hear this V12 you've paid for, right? And you know, Ferrari V12s like Holy Grail stuff. The TDF is the opposite of that. Like it, the valves open up at like 30 miles an hour and like fully, and it's really loud. Uh, they've stripped 110 kilograms from the car, and as a result, a good chunk of that is sound deadening. So all the inside is satin carbon. So the way that this thing vibrates, um, when these valves open up, it's like, you just can't help but have this like cheeky grin because you're like, man, I'm just scratching the surface of this thing. You know, it's like, I'm just like, you know, 30 miles an hour and it's alive. You know, it's like, wow, this thing's really, really raw. Um, and then when you get on it, I have a weird way of describing it, but... If you've ever spent time on a jet ski, well, you know when you're going slow, you're just leaving the like wherever you've picked it up from, and it's kind of not very agile when you're going steady. It's not until it finds its plane on top of the water that it becomes this responsive thing. The TDF's a little bit like that. It finds its plane. It rewards you for going faster, for sure. It kind of comes into its own when you're able to manhandle it a bit, like heavier braking. Is a bit, it loves that being able to transfer weight in it it loves that um, yeah it's just a much more visceral experience that I'm used to from brands which have said it's like a race car for the road and it, it kind of isn't yeah. uh, this gives you that feeling it gives you that and that's, that for me is the number one thing it's just the connection with it is the number one and I haven't found anything quite like it yet anyway so yeah it's cool man Right, it sounds, yeah, it yeah, sounds, yeah. sounds sick. You're gonna have to drive it. So pretty sick. I'm keen. Yeah, yeah. So on um, sort of limited edition Ferraris. Yeah, because we've had a, a couple of things recently. Yeah, yeah. We've had the um, Ferrari is SP1. It's SP1 and SP2. And SP2. Yeah. Which, if you guys haven't seen, just Google them. They're yeah. like a like single, an SLR Sterling Moss. Yeah, kind of like an SLR Sterling Moss, just sort of old school looking Ferrari yeah. single seater. Slash two seats. Yeah. So, so the SP1 thing. has one seat, yeah. <laughs> and the SP2 has two seats. Um, if you're trying to picture it, the seat isn't in the middle. I can picture a picture a car with the roof chopped off entirely, no windscreen, and just the seat on the left. And, yeah. the, and, the, and the seat on the right is filled in. With yeah, like an old school sort of race car, like a D-type, yeah, or exactly something like that. that, like a long bonnet seat at the at the rear. And I assume it's based on an 812 Superfast. Yeah, I think they've not said right? it's an 812, but it's it's got more horsepower than an 812. Wow. Um, nuts, that thing. It doesn't look like it's got much rollover protection, so don't so, flip it. Slash zero. Um, <laughs> I think they're track only. Are they really? I think, no. I think they are track Seriously? only. Um, oh, that's such a shame. But, like, you know, 
If people someone can roll legal race cars, you can roll legal a track only For car. Sure. Yeah. I know someone who's getting one of those uh, Brabham. BT, really? whatever. He's going to road legal yeah, I mean, I mean, why not? Yeah, why not? You know. But it's they're, they're an interesting thing. If Ferrari seem to be going down that route of doing, they're doing quite a lot of those SP1 twos, aren't they? It's yeah, like two fifty, five hundred. It's two. Was it two hundred of each? Something like Something that. Like that. That's yeah. a lot of cars. That's a lot of cars for the kind of car they are, which were super invite only. Like, and they're mm, ultra. I don't know what the the price is. It's it's, it's you know, I think they're well off for me. One point five plus tax. Yeah, so just you know, similar to an eight twelve. That's a good way of like pumping out 400 million quid over yeah there. and then the other thing that they're doing is they're launching an SUV they are launching an SUV yeah which you know yeah. they said they would never do but I people yeah. say these sorts of things do you know I find it I actually I thought I'd be more against it than I am I don't care I think I'd probably buy one <laughs> <laughs> no I think I look at the Porsche model and now you you can't even imagine Porsche without a yeah. KN but for me, if it generates more revenue to invest in more supercars, I'm fine. Exactly. Look like, at Porsche these days. If it funds the RS program or the exactly. TDFs or whatever. Yeah. And also, if you're... I don't know how Ferrari are going to do this, but let's say Porsche. They're Panameras and Caymans and Boxers and all the sort of... Not necessarily cheaper, but mass-produced stuff. stuff. Yeah. If they can lower their carbon footprint footprint significantly with that car so much so that like that whole yeah. fleet let's say all the Cayennes and whatever go electric mm. you can make naturally aspirated V12 yeah. so the cars come that's it, it. it yeah, matter, which would be like, amazing which would be sick yeah yeah it'd be super <laughs> cool I'm fully down for it yeah I think an SUV will be interesting it'll definitely be hybrid it'll probably be a V6 hybrid yeah. I think and whatever it'll probably be awesome you it'll know, probably be great. awesome guy. they be don't awesome. make bad cars yeah yeah I think it's like a, 20, a, 2000, a 2020 car, I think. Yeah. I think it's quite soon. Like, that's pretty soon. It's that 18 long. months away, Some man. people may have got a 4 GT by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so Ferrari have also made another limited car recently, the, yeah. the Pista. The have Pista. You, you, did you get invited to the nope. launch? Nope. No. So this is the other thing about about this brand. I mean, I, I, it's funny. What I'm about to say is also going to contradict what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty close with that brand, but I didn't get an invite. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, uh, I mean, over the last few years, I, you know, I've, I've been, I, I invited to the 812 Superfast launch, which was way more exclusive than I thought it was. Um, and the, just quickly, like the press launch side of things is is so cool um i've started doing videos on behind the scenes i saw you did a video on yeah because like we go to these things and we're all having a great time getting on with all this stuff and then you see just us focusing on the car and i was like what about all this other cool stuff so i dabbled with this behind the scenes thing at the uh, 600 lt launch uh but ferrari do it big man they flew us to italy on a private jet for the launch nice. of this, for the launch of this car and it's just like you and some and some other journalists like just balling out on this jet. <laughs> you, you you land and then they they show you over to the factory and you have this big like meal and it's 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 super cool. But for some reason with Pista, they I believe Ferrari the factory like Ferrari HQ allocate the regions how many slots they've got right and it's up to the region um, to say who's important enough basically to go on these these car launches so 488 Pista three people from England went three people it was like Autocar Evo Top Gear that was yeah. it so the amount of comments interestingly 
underneath the comment section on my 600 LT video, the amount of people were like, how does it compare to 488 Pizza? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't driven one. No idea. I don't know. Um, I'd love to try one. I, From what I've read, it's a brilliant car, but I th- I'm, I'm, I'm detecting undertones of meh. <laughs> you know what I well, mean? That was Under- undertones of almost <sighs> McLaren-esque. It's, it's like really fast and amazingly capable, but you should drive this every day. That type of thing. When it came out, and I... It's amazing how you can watch, like, far, if, let's say the piece has come out, and off the back of the Speciale, which was the last one, you mm-hmm. know, like, this could be, this could be the car, like, yeah. this, this, this could be the shit. This is the and one. then you listen to six people talk about it, and none of them, you can see it in their eyes, like, none of them have got it. that fit. They're yeah. all using language. Yeah. That is not how you describe something you like. It's like, it's extremely capable. It's good. So what? Like Everything's these, capable. Everything, they're like, oh, it's, it's really fast. It set us such and such lap time. It yeah. makes it easy. All of these things don't say to me, like, oh my God, no. I love this car so much. Not at all. Don't, I'm, I'm just going to do another. Like that thing, yeah. oh, was it like a Chris Harris video? This cl- classic thing where he's been, he's like, the radio says, oh, you've got to come in. He's like, screw no, that. Doing one more lap. Yeah. But, the last GT3, in fact, I think he was like, yeah, I'm just going to stay out here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, burn some more rubber. Like the, yeah. the piece that it just doesn't seem to have that. The underlying impression that I've had of that car is just not that. Yeah, that. Yeah, I I think their biggest problem was their own last car. So their last version of that was the Speciale, and it's naturally aspirated. The last is naturally aspirated, and um, so so here's some insider stuff. I know I've never told anyone this because I've never had a forum to tell it to, but. Um, I was on the launch of the Alfa Romeo Stelvio Quadrifoglio. Right. Which, by the way, is awesome. The engine in that car was developed by Ferrari. Okay. And on this launch was the engineers who had been plucked from Ferrari (laughs) and gone to Alfa. And this guy, he he was the lead developer on the engine of this car. And his resume was... FXXK, Scuderia, 458, and Speciale. And I tell him I own a Speciale, and he's like, bro, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you did the magic on that thing. It's amazing. And he's like, you know why it was called Speciale, right? I'm like, no. He's like, we originally wanted to make it rev to 10. <laughs> yeah. And that's, so the original, and then the, the original plan, what, well, the original plan was, this is what he told me, okay? I'm not, this isn't yeah. from a Ferrari spokesperson. This is just a guy that used to work on the engines. He goes, We've got a couple of mules in Fiorano of a Speciales and they rev to 10, right? And says, That's why it was called Speciale, because we knew it was the last and we were going to go out with a bang. And that would have produced more horsepower as well. Would you imagine? He said, The only reason we didn't do it is Bosch quoted so much money to, de- to develop a, an ECU that would make the car reliable that it didn't make any business sense. He says, But that's where the name came from. And, and, and I agree with you, it would have been really freaking speciale if it revved to 10,000. But instead, they captured it at, at, at nine, which was only 500 RPM more than the 458, I think. Um, but how crazy would that be? That's Insane, so insanely cool. Because you yeah. hear, um, I. Someone I met a long time ago, you've met them as well. Um, they told me about going to Porsche. He, he raced in the RSR program and knew a lot of people quite well and landed in Germany to go and do something there. And they dropped off a car for him. And it was their four-litre 
RS, so the 2010-2011, but the 4.0. But it was the one that they were doing all their engine development on. And he said, he was like, it must have been 650 horsepower. (laughs) It was like a 5 litre or something. It was was the one that they bought out and bought out and bought out until it exploded. And they were like, this is about where we can get it. Amazing. And he said it was the most mental thing. But imagine if someone took a Speciali engine and did, did a and just, thing and fizzed the internals a bit and made it rev to 10 right to I mean, although you've got then you've got the ECU problems ECU but I imagine yeah. 8 yeah. years later yeah what year is the Speciali 10? 11? 12? Uh, it's, no it's way later it's like 14 was it? yeah man it was like really quite late yeah oh, okay. so 11, 12, 13 they were still 458 and 458 so Spider then Five, five years five ago. Years, that's yeah, five, five years, years of tech. Yeah, that's that it. Yeah, yeah. Someone can, sure. can some, some the kid. I'm sure. Their, like <laughs> project over the summer will be like, oh yeah, I'll just mod that. Yeah. Um, did you see this guy called Greg B on Instagram? Yeah, yeah. You come across him. You seen he has the that prototype with the V12 with the V12 with the Ferrari engine in it. Kids, <laughs> guys. I, I like I like question that. I'm like he owns a laugh Ferrari, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like, why would you want one of those? I mean, well, I, he, I mean, he has a lot of stuff. He has a stuff. lot of amazing stuff. Would it be would it be well balanced? I don't know. It might just be. It might be super heavy in the back. That's what I mean. Yeah, super heavy. But V twelve. Yeah. But V yeah, twelve. But who cares? And you're probably not going to drive it all, like, no, that no, often. Just hilarious. Wow. Absolutely ludicrous. Those cars. <laughs> yeah, especially that ripped to ten. And then Very it would cool. also that put. What was the horsepower figure on a normal Speciali? I should really know this. I think it was like six hundred horsepower. Was it six? think so or is it like five yeah it was like you know five nine something. five nine so that would they would have been like six yeah eleven or six twelve yeah, or something sure. with an extra yeah. extra yeah. ten but yeah yeah it's just interesting those yeah. sort of things well I'm, at some point in time so you you haven't got your name down for a pista uh my dealer still has a slot for me and i i actually i i had a meeting with him and and told him no yeah. I mean, and he was like gobsmacked. Like, what, what, what are you doing? I was like, what do you mean? And I gave him the reasons. My main reason isn't to do with it being not being a special car or any kind of anything we've just spoken about. Actually, my reason is that every supercar in the future is going to be a turbocharged supercar. And what's special mm-hmm. about this one, right? So the four eight eight never really did it for me but before I had a Speciali I had a 4.5H remember that black 4.5H yeah. I had it's a 2011 one and the overrun was incredible um, I'm pretty confident that after 2011 they, they there was a map the ECU change. got changed in Definitely. 2012 it just it just must have done Like I don't have confirmation of that but I'm, I'm convinced yeah it did okay so the overall like the sound of my 2011 4.5H was phenomenal it was the best James turned up at my house mm. with this car and we drove around and I'd come across 458s before this and yeah. after and whatever and it just sounded unreal the overrun on it and he hadn't done it was endless it was just endless and insane and ever since I've spoken to people and I've been to 458s and yeah. they just sounded rubbish nothing like and that and I was like hang on I went in one and someone said yeah 2011, 2012, that sort of time. Yeah. There was an ECU change for X reason, whatever, yeah. and they changed it. Yeah. And like, oh. Such a shame. Honestly, I think it's still, other than the TDF, is the best sounding car I've ever had, without, without a doubt. Mm. We, we drove around around here, and it was like, bouncing off the walls. The overrun was Yeah, like was five a miles an hour. It would keep going. <laughs> it just kept on going. It was a really special thing. It was cool. It was black with like yellow contrast stitching. It was it was good. For, I'd buy that car. <laughs> I'd buy that car again. It was so good. So on um, when I 
knew that you were going to come down. I yeah. Knew, well, I knew we were going to do this for a long time, but sure. literally, it she was going to be today. Yeah. Yeah. I asked a couple of people if they had any questions for you. Cool. There was a lot of, um, I would say, not particularly great questions or more <laughs> hilarious. Definitely, there was a couple from someone we know. Okay. Asking about what sort of bath products and stuff you use. That was um, definitely a, a Mr. Chris. A Mr. Chris Kalakis. <laughs> Shout out, Chris. Shout out, Chris You Kalakis. know what you asked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and actually, one of the ones, something you can pretty much know, was basically like, why don't you put our videos faster? Or like, uh, more mate. often. I uh, mean, okay, so I'm... I don't know where this will sit or if we're going to ever see any uh, comments back off the back of this podcast. But I've always wanted to know if how important it is to people that... Not that I drop the quality, but if if I put out... Uh, sorry, included less of the whole, like, glossy stuff. Yeah. And was just, like, literal documentation of a day yeah like your phone five minutes of a day I could put that out all day long and that's fine um, but if you want if you want it as it is I'm afraid it's a no go guys it's, it's that it takes I'm 15 a, hours to I'm shoot. afraid it's a no go yeah so if you wanted if you wanted to stay as it is it's three a week maybe yeah. four uh, but if you don't want me to put glossy like slow motion overlays and stuff on then bang them out all day long that's it it's You're tricky cool. I, I, when I watch yeah. watch videos I, after the initial finding a channel and mm. you, whatever you start to you know you like the person after a while and actually you then just kind of care what they have to say it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean yeah, you can watch a glossy video all day long but if it's got no content it doesn't really matter yeah. so does it matter I don't know like we the majority. Oh, just try it and see what they say. I mean, yeah, exactly. Because the majority <laughs> of people will be like, "No, I want you to do better production yeah. value for every and day of the every week. and twice a day." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah I might yeah. just try it and see. Um, one person asked, "Are you going to do any racing? Have you got any plans to go racing at the oh, moment?" Oh man, so me and racing doesn't just keep doesn't lining up so Sam knows about this project I didn't really tell too many people about it because I don't tell people about things until I know things are happening and um, I got super super close with Audi uh, to do some racing with them um, in I mean a series that admittedly would have put me in the deep end but I'd have done it (laughs) so they wanted me to race their um, their R8 GT3 in the BLN series which is carnage it's like mayhem yeah, that yeah. series it's really in a, the deep end close racing long endurance <laughs> racing stuff but you know I figured oh, it's, it's there it's their bill yeah <laughs> you know what I mean I was like if you want, I'll give you all the exposure you yeah, want I'll get better let's do it <laughs> and we were we were so close to, like, I'd, had, I'd had like fittings like suit fittings and all sorts of stuff and um, livery for the car was getting designed and then uh, there was a CEO change at Audi so Stefan Winkleman went to Bugatti yeah and overnight, the interim oh, no. CEO pulled the plug on all his, not just mine, yeah, all, yeah. The, all of the projects that were in motion under him. And this is, don't forget, you're coming off the back of Dieselgate now. So it was this Audi which is like, if it isn't on brand and the budgets are can be used elsewhere, pull the plug. And funnily enough, a bunch of YouTubers racing around in R8s wasn't either of those things. Yeah. So they just went, no, <laughs> that's out. So, um... And since then, I just simply haven't had the time to... But you've got your race license now. I've got my race license, yeah. So you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. If anyone's willing to give you a seat. I'm ready to go. If anyone's willing to put me in a car, I'm ready to rock, baby. Uh, (laughs) It's the... 
in terms of doing a season, if it was a proper supported thing, like like the Audi thing yeah. was, then I would have cleared the calendar, obviously allocated time to it. Uh, but these days, like allocating time to a season, like super it's hard. a lot of time. Super, super. And to be any good, you got to have, as you know, you got to have a, a lot of seat time. Um, but what I'd love to do, funnily enough, is some like fun cup stuff, just to get my, just to stay on it, get some signatures on the on the license. Yeah. So I could, race abroad some more and um, well next year um, because I'm doing some silly things I'm doing a 24 hour Citroen C1 race awesome at Spa awesome in like a couple of weeks yeah and I think it's there's 150 cars on track or something ridiculous like that that's what I'm talking about man I want to do some of that action Citroen C1s and um, (laughs) two CVs okay that's it that's the cars on track which I mean, it's going to be it's, it's, carnage. It's right? going to be carnage. That first and pretty hilarious. Shot is going to be the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah whoever's in for that stint number trying one. Trying to get into eight foot of tarmac. Wow. Pfizer in for that one. Yeah, yeah. He can go for the first lap for sure. Um, but yeah, so have you driven many race cars? Um, yeah. Had the chance to? Not enough. I drove an R8 LMS, which is like a like an actual GT3 car. Mm. Um, that was that was crackers. Um, I drove a Formula One car. <laughs> That's, yes. Yeah. So I mean, but I only had like five laps in that. So, um, but the build-up to that was a Formula Renault, and I did about fifty laps in that. And mm. That was fantastically awesome fun. Formula Renault. What's that in terms of? Do you know any, anything about the car in terms of like horsepower? It's and like weight? a two-liter uh, Hewlin gearbox. It's like I don't know, eight hundred kilograms or something yeah. like that. Two hundred and fifty horsepower type something of like chassis. Yeah. S- Slicks and wings. Uh, it's like a sort of more powerful Formula Ford with yeah. wings, um, but just mega like downforce that you could feel and learn from. You know, it wasn't like obscene; it was just uh, very approachable downforce that weighted up the steering wheel enough that you were well aware that it it was, it working, was working for sure. Like there was this corner I, I did the the F one drive was at Paul Ricard, and the days before I was learning the circuit and just like downforce really in the Formula Renault and that that circuit I think it was turn 5 is called scene and it was like flat in 6th and the, the steering weight you're like eh, it's like you're like you're opening one of those old you know vault uh, doors uh, and it really weighted up super heavy so when I jumped in the F1 car I was like man this is going to be hardcore I didn't realise that Formula 1 cars had power steering because the downforce is so much oh, yes. you wouldn't be able to turn the wheel how crazy is that it's so mental so um, yeah, in fact, I would I I want to do a a podcast or something talking about that experience because yeah. the the video was fifteen minutes long and you try and capture everything you can and you're driving it, and, but the stuff you didn't see it for me it was almost more interesting than the stuff you do see in terms mm. of like like brake pressures for example the minimum amount of brake pressure per corner was 50 kilograms on your left leg so you can only left foot brake uh, because of the like stuff in the way st- well basically the steering columns in between your feet for one but also the, the sort of cockpit shrouding where your legs go down into the carbon tunnel is so tight you can't move your hmm. feet um, so you're, you're braking on your left leg and the, the engineers... I was driving... It was Kimi Raikkonen's 2012 uh, Renault F1 car. And the engineer was like, uh, you, we, ideally, we want you to be pressing above 50. 50 kilograms a corner, right? And the next time you go to the gym, do, do a, a leg press just on your left leg. 
and count them out how many corners there yeah. are. I don't know, you need Silverstone, one of the like 16 corners yeah. or something. So 16 presses on your left leg with minimum a pressure of 50 kgs. Um, and then you've got to multiply that by your average F1 uh, race, which is like 50 laps. The, these people are superhuman. Like they are, it's, it's unbelievable what these guys do. And I remember the guy in the pits talking to me in, in my ear. And because it felt like I was having a fight with a bear when I'm in this thing, because it's the first time in an F1 mm. car, you're like, every sense is just being ripped apart. And I remember like wanting to talk back to this guy in the pits. And it was like I was shouting at him in a rock concert. Because <laughs> I thought I, I was in this like attack, you know. And the next time I listened to a Formula One race, you, any of these guys, you listen to them talking back to the pits, and it's like they're a, a, like they're in a church. Yeah, they're just like like we're talking now, and less yeah. so. Like they're just talking back <laughs> to them in complete peace and normality while they're fighting for the same piece of tarmac with like twenty six other cars with G forces. Like they go up to like five and a yeah, half like G through their it's, 700 kilos it's incredible I mean the Formula Renault down the main straight at Paul Ricard uh, I think it was it, it's not a fast car it's doing like 120 mile an hour in a straight line something like that um, just because it didn't have much power and qu- quite uh, there was a severe drag really from the, yeah. the aero and you're braking just past the 100 yard mark um, in the Formula One car, you were doing 160 miles an hour, breaking past the 80 yard mark. <laughs> it was like yeah. it was just complete, like worlds apart, worlds and worlds apart. It is mental. Was that your yeah. first experience on slicks, or um, you driven something on slicks before? The R8 LMS was my first experience on, okay, on slicks. Yeah. Uh, super. De- I'm always in at the defense, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, first experience on slicks was in that. That was around Circuit de Catalunya in Barcelona great yeah. great circuit um, and it was a nice hot day and it was sticky and it was great um, And you, but that was cool because you came out of the pits on cold and you could, you could work your way up to it yeah. and the same with Formula Renault you came out cold tyres and work your way up to it the Formula 1 was you came out on warmish and you and, and they were like whatever you do do not let this drop <laughs> yeah, yeah. whatever you do do not let the temperature on this drop or else you'll be like driving on ice um, but yeah no slicks changed the game man slicks changed yeah, well, the game you, uh, you had done, I know before that you, you've been left for breaking for a while and you've yeah. done it in road cars and stuff yeah. there must have been people that have turned up for that experience that have never done like yeah, let's so, say Sam or someone yes yeah, so I worked this out so it turns out and this when I first say this you're going to be like what are you talking about but uh, it turns out left foot braking on the road way harder because you're not slamming you're not slamming the brake on there's there's no need for finesse on a racetrack because when you brake on a race car you're 99% of your ability to brake um, so you brake absolutely everything just up to the point before it locks up the the discs so you don't need finesse the finesse you need is when you bleed off so when you yeah. fade off but because you've got so much load through it it's it's easier to ease off than it is to gently apply it when you're on the road you also um, you for, for anyone who isn't even remotely familiar with it the only thing that they associate with their left leg is either soft braking in an automatic or also the clutch pedal and if you've got clutch part of your brain engaged and you put your brake on you go through the window. Like it's, it's, it's insane. So I started left foot braking on the road. And I think on, as a result, I reckon I could play piano with my left foot. It's yeah. so like the, the dexterity is mad. Uh, but it turns out I didn't need it. 
Turns out I don't I don't need that much finesse in my left foot I to found, break on the track. I found the transition very difficult because I one of the things that in a race car and this when someone had explained this it made a lot more sense is in a race car you are bolted down and if you're in a, a proper setup so they've done a molded seat for you mm-hmm. you don't move mm. so you can lift both feet off the pedals and stay wave there. them around and stay there stop at 150 yeah, yeah. to gnaw and your feet don't move whereas in a road car you're always yeah. bracing sliding so if you mm. try and left foot brake have both feet off the ground. Yeah. Your weight moves as you break. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That was I mean, I guess, thing. like, the, the, generally you're not going quite as fast on the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the only reason I started doing it, I learned when I got my first automatic, and I thought, I'll start doing this, because yeah. one day I'm going to be in a race car, and <laughs> yeah, I need yeah. a left foot brake. This or, like, or just this, go go-karting. Yeah, or just actually. go go-karting. Yeah, but I thought, I'm going to spend way more time in a road car. So um, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn to... A left foot brake and then it turns out you don't need anywhere near the amount of finesse on a track which is where you only really need to left foot brake um, because you're stamping on it all the time so yeah it's yeah it's, it's so much more intuitive it was so much stamp on it it was like a switch <laughs> in my head I, someone had told me about the seat thing and because that mm. was the, I couldn't work out why it felt weird mm. left foot braking in and he said, okay, well, you're not going to move around yeah. and you're not blah, blah, blah. And I just went out and just did it. And the only bit that I struggle with now is in when it's wet. For sure. Because it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's applying the right amount of pressure. And, That's a different story. And yeah. bleeding I off guess, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, I think um, it really comes in handy, particularly when you... I find the transition from... It's transition to braking back onto accelerator yeah. and vice versa can be... You can literally cross over as you go like your left foot depressing on the brake can be matched with your right foot coming off the accelerator and the transition can be super smooth so your weight transfer doesn't upset the car as much and vice versa when you're coming off the brake and back on the exactly and if you're getting in a a car you haven't driven or something else and i always had a big problem with that trans my transition wasn't very fast Mm-hmm. And it was, I think part of it was a confidence thing of just being, just holding that right foot down until the braking point. <laughs> the and then you've got to move across Same. and brake it. Yeah. Whereas if you've got both pedals basically ready to go, ready to go. you can just say, I keep this one down yeah. and then I'm on the other one. It's not That's like it. I'm going to miss it. Yeah. So That's bang, it. you're just on it. Yeah. And um, I think it's helped me it's most on the road, actually. I've avoided a few close shaves because I'm already on the brake. Yeah. I'm always on, on the brake. Um, not on it, you know. My foot's <laughs> yeah. always there. Yeah, or just doing brake stands at every yeah. traffic light. I wonder why my engines are always breaking. Um, <laughs> yeah, my foot is, is 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 almost always like pretty much primed for it. And I've had a few instances where I've I've been able to stop like reassuringly well. Um, whereas in like particularly when you're carrying some speed, it's amazing how much ground you travel between taking your foot off the accelerator yeah. and moving it to the brake pedal can be like. A, a few more yards right yeah know? and that's a couple more yards of accelerating before you Absolutely, break and all yeah. that or whatever <laughs> yeah. um, I think generally when I've, ha- I've had people on on the expansive number of podcasts that I've done so far we are? I've, we're hour currently and, on wow. an hour and, hour and 40 wow. minutes oh, we're, we're, heading on to, we're diddling on wow, that's awesome. I have a couple of questions that I've asked everyone let's do it I like this okay uh, do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey or sort of or even just a segment of road that really stands out. Yeah. Obviously, you've driven a lot of stuff. Two, two, uh, two trips, two roads. Um, our trip that we did. So a while ago, Sam and I, this is before I was on YouTube or any, any of this jazz, Sam and I drove down to Monaco for an event called Top Marks, which is this mm. like annual gathering of cars in 
the south of France, and we went down via this this route that we didn't even know we'd end up on. It's just the way it, it, the sat-nav took us, really, wasn't it? And then we would, we would find some other roads and go, oh, why don't we go up here? That looks cool. And we found this road that we appropriately titled the Red Rock Road because all the rocks are red. <laughs> <laughs> I think that came about because the actual road name is the D2202, and that's not the catchiest name in the world. But when you get on this, like, literally, like, the minute you start driving on, when it gets interesting, the strata of the rock changes and it's red. So started calling it Red Rock Road, and that that seemed to spread. Like everyone calls it that now. So. Yeah. But um, yeah, that, that was some years back, and I remember I've been back there since, and I've had amazing times. But there's nothing like discovering it, and it was just you and me. And we were speaking about this on our previous road trip that big groups of cars are cool, but when you really want to thread it, when you want to get on some of those kind of like tight, twisty Alpine roads, actually big groups aren't that great. Whereas with the, if you're in a pack of like three to five, maybe. It's a nice flow. Yeah, it's and you, good. nothing takes that long. You can make yeah, decisions. Fuel, fuel stops don't you take that decisions. long either. You make decisions. Exactly. You can just, just yeah, get stuff done. Should we do this? I know. If there's 30 of you, there's just that, no hope. We ended up on that road because we stopped at this small restaurant on the um, N85, which yes. is, what's that? The Route Napoleon. Route Napoleon. Yeah. And we were just in this tiny little slightly weird lunch place. Yeah. And we were chatting to this guy and he came over to talk to us. And That's right, yes. I'm like, right. why, why, why are you talking to us? I don't want to talk to a random person. And then he said, oh, you guys, you know, if you've got some time. And he said, yeah. "What? You, you ignore this road. Go yeah, absolutely right. this that route. That is right, what happened. Yeah, wow. And so we took this detour. I think we went over a... It was almost like a dam or a bridge or something. Yeah. Found yeah, this yeah, crazy, yeah. Did this crazy yeah. road that ended up like- at iridescent blue lake do you remember that lake yeah we for a photograph and yeah and then I could destroy my brake pads or yeah. the warning light came on saying you're done so I had to yeah, yeah. get Some up get back pads. to Monaco from that yeah. so you said that it was two two so that was my one of my first and um, one of my greatest drives both because it was an amazing drive but also because it took me by complete surprise McLaren launched their 570 GT Mm-hmm. in Tenerife I mean I've never I've never been to Tenerife I've only associated it with like cheesy British holidays right and it's a volcanic island and the the like rock formations and mountain structure there are incredible it is it's other world it's like feels like uh, you're on the moon or Mars or something it's really fascinating rock formations but as a result at the top of the the volcano um, is a um, what's the word called where you you study stars? What's that? Uh, astronomy type. Yes. Astronomy gaff. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's um, periscope. There's a big telescope, oh, telescope. At, the t- at, the t- at the top of this volcano, and this road winds its way up there over the volcano and back down a different side. And they must have resurfaced this road within recent times. And it was just like glass smooth, sticky hot. Like it was like 30 degrees. And the roads were absolutely incredible. And Tenerife has its own microclimate. And at certain hours of the day, early morning and early afternoon, the clouds form halfway through the oh, like sort of height of this volcano, so you you can drive through them. Well, I actually ended up driving through them on the way down, and uh, a friend Sam actually drove woke up one morning super early and drove through them on the 
way up. But you're above these clouds, and the view is just unbelievable. The roads are like glass smooth, pure black, grippy asphalt, uh, and it's swooping and undulating. Which they're the kind of corners that you can't see enough around that you can get on it. Um, and I just remember being in this car, which was a brand new 570 then. I was thinking, man, this is the sickest thing ever. I've never been on roads anything like this. Like the weather was insane, uh, and we had another 570 driven by Seb. I was just, man, just threading it through these amazing, amazing roads, and it didn't let up. And it was like mile after mile after mile, just like complete flow, smooth, like no potholes, nothing. Um, and that was just one of those roads that I think I enjoyed the most because it was the most unexpected. I didn't imagine it. It's such a small island. Yeah. The, the, the last thing you imagine is like like hundreds of miles of strips of insane asphalt. Yeah. So that was cool. And quite often you seem to get these roads that in random parts of the world that don't go anywhere. Yeah. Like this, you know, they've built it to get to this yeah. hotel at the top, but there's no reason to go up there oh, unless yeah. you're going to this place. I've got to throw in. I've got to throw in number three. So number th- number three then. This is. I mean, okay. This is a funny one because it's it's a bit of a skewed experience, which is why you could almost put it at number one. But beginning of 2017, um, there's an Emirate state which neighbours Dubai called Ras Al Khaimah. It's abbreviated to RAK, R-A-K, and um, the tourist board reached out and asked if we could help basically expose their wonderful country. I was like, well, I'm a car channel. I was like, you got any cars and good roads? And they were like, well, yeah, we got some, we got like a, a rental company in the area who can rent us some cars. And we've got this, this mountain range, which turns out to be like one of the few mountain ranges in, in the area. But the majority of it ran through Rack. And they said, we can like close this road for you and you can have a play around on there and then visit some hotels. And so I was like, all right, cool. Sounds good. So I get there. I mean, we, we got a, a McLaren 650S and a Ferrari, a Ferrari 488 Spider, And it was myself and a friend, Ollie Webb. And Ollie um, is a professional driver. He raced the World Endurance Championship in uh, Le Mans 24 hours. And very proficient, capable driver. And it turns out that at the top of this mountain range, as they do in the Middle East, they like to build the biggest and the best of, of everything. They originally decided to build like the next world's only seven-star hotel or something absurd. Yeah. But of course, to get there, they got to build the infrastructure to access it to build it. So they built this road. It's a, it's a disservice. It's like imagine an alpine road that's three lanes wide. So it's like an alpine motorway, right? But like steep with positive camber on the way up, just like unreal. And it winds on for maybe like 40 miles, say. And at the top, they decided not to build the hotel. So it doesn't go to anywhere at all. Nowhere. And the tourist board said, well, it's easy to close this for you because no one's kind of going there. So we had this road closed for a whole day. And we had a production crew with us and some drones. And we had a... A Range Rover Sport SVR as our pace car, as our tracking car. And me and Ollie were hooning, I mean, like 10 tenths up this road, which you got to see the video. It's hard to explain. Good video. I think just like type in world's best driving road into YouTube. It's there. It's got like, it's went crazy. Like the, the video's on like 3 million views or wow. something. And uh, I think in terms of drives, that was one of the best road drives of my life like you've got to see the video to see why 
because we just had the ultimate freedom on one of the best roads I've, I've ever driven so that was up there but it's a bit skewed because it was closed for us so yeah. it was a bit of an odd uh, situation but very very special time yeah super special alright next question five car garage oh man unlimited value go and it has to the only caveat is it sort of has to fit into your existing life like you, what you do you normally sort of you know things you have to do day to day there's a whole podcast in itself, man. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> okay, without any, without any uh, too much explanation, um, I go I go in, I go a McLaren F1 GTR. Oh yeah, yeah, not the long tail or the LM, just just a GTR, and then we could stick it on the road. <laughs> so that um, yeah, on yeah. that, have you got a specific one that you like? Yeah, I just like the 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 plain orange one, just the, right. just the orange. Yeah. Nice, like as long as it comes with a headset, <laughs> matching headset with a mouthpiece, so I can talk to my two other passengers. Oh no, GTRs actually only had one other seat, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I'll, so you could get an LM, uh, maybe an LM, which looks exactly like a GTR, similar. but it has three seats. Yeah, maybe I get an LM. No, there's other seats to take people for drives in. I want one other seat. That'll, that'll be fine. So yeah, the GTRs okay. Um, yeah, so just the like McLaren Orange F1 GTR. Yeah, Apex car, job done. That's the one. Then um, a Carrera GT. Okay. Do do you need some reasons into this, or just like yeah, that's, give that's me it. like a little. Uh, if you can give a little explanation, that's all. Out the outside of the McLaren F1, it's probably probably the ultimate manual car ever ever made. Pro- Arguably, yeah. obviously, but as a as a real snapshot into why we'll never see this car again and why I think it's important, the the engine, if you dig deep enough, originally started as an F1 engine. So there was a there was a uh, racing team in the sixties called Footwork, and Footwork commissioned Porsche to make an engine for them for the following season, but they ended up going bankrupt, and then Porsche never made the engine, so they shelved it. And then when Porsche came to do uh, an LMP1 car, they then brought this engine off the shelf and then developed a naturally aspirated V10 to go in their Le Mans car for God's sake then the FIA changed the rules on that and then they had to shelve it again so some genius was like I don't know why don't we like put this in a road car (laughs) so what you've got is an F1 underpinned Le Mans developed Porsche naturally aspirated V10 connected to a manual gearbox and a carbon tubbed car that looks sick and you can take the roof off yeah (laughs) <laughs> that's why I want one of those slot number two Done. yeah so slot number two cool uh, the F1 GTRs are sequential isn't it yeah uh, is it sequential I think it's H-pattern is it H-pattern it might be sequential it could be sequential I, okay. I don't actually know anyway not that that changes things but, but just, anyway um, F12 TDF thankfully yeah. I managed to get hold of nice. one of those I'm probably going to keep that f- forever I think um, that's three then I think with the remotest amount of practicality, I, I really do like the RS6. I think it's, right. great. it's a great all-rounder, man. Like you really ticks all the boxes. Like it's quick enough, it's practical enough, it's sensible enough. It looks good, it sounds cool. Uh, four-wheel drive. That's the like good daily, right? Like that's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty sick. Um, and then I want something that's... <sighs> this is where it gets complicated, man. Because you could class your F1 GTR as your track car, but then... Do you want something? It's worth re- twenty million. Exact, yeah. Do you, do I want to be thrashing around like that kind of car on the track? And even though it, it is a track car, I think there's more dedicated track cars which could be more 
enjoyable. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, you know, and this is where I get torn because I'm thinking, do I want something like a, like a Porsche cup car yeah. or do you want to go down your route and go like radical type Prototype-y of type stuff, type of, type of stuff. Honestly, right now I couldn't tell you cause I don't have enough experience in it. Mm. Um, I think because it's <sighs> performance per pound, the whole radical thing, you can't really go anywhere else. Really? I mean, you could go to single-seaters and stuff, but then you're getting really expensive and you need, like, a full-on race team. They, it's it. unbelievable the performance you get I mean, from, like, an SR3. Like, you can buy a second-hand SR3 for probably 45 grand. Yeah. And they will lap faster than a GT3 race car. <laughs> yeah. Round Silverstone. So, like, you know, that'll do. But, <laughs> That'd be great. But you don't necessarily get the acceleration or any of that stuff that you get in the other cars. No. So, I mean, you did say money, no object. Yeah, so money object. You could so, have an FXXK or whatever. So that if you want. Kimi Raikkonen F1 car. Well, there we go. <laughs> I drove would make an ideal track day car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they'd let you out with anyone else on track. I also so think what? they'd probably blow the noise limits. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, some crazy track car. I think there we go. Yeah, yeah. That's that's five cars. Cool. Good times. Okay, next question. Do you, is there a car that you think is the sort of the most undervalued car at the moment? Or is it a specific car that you say, yeah, that's like undervalued or particularly like, amazingly good value? Amazingly good value is still the GT3. I still think yeah. the Porsche GT3 is is up there with like the ultimate the ultimate performance per pound road car. Um, and that, that, that doesn't just mean fast. Like that's not what I mean by that. I mean like the full package in terms of the dynamics, the quality, the usability... The performance, obviously, I mean, it's certainly no slouch. Mm. Uh, you could track it, you can road trip it. You just, the, the space in the back. I mean, I, I'm kind of amazed that I didn't make, I didn't have a GT3 on that list of five cars. But uh, you've got some good stuff. I got some there. good stuff there. <laughs> That's some good stuff in there, man. Um, but the I'm struggling to get past the GT3. Really, um, value is pretty subjective, but I. Th- think a Carrera GT still they're getting there now in terms of the way they're going they're getting really expensive yeah. but I think rightly so I really do think rightly so like I think we'll be sat here in three years time and they'll be a I million think they're just quid mega, they're just mega, they're just mega. and you compare they them to tricky, other things that are to similar drive, money yeah like a a TDF is more than a, a Carrera more. GT yeah, and Carrera yeah. GT has a lot more yeah, heritage a huge amount more a huge amount more yeah I just think I just think we're going to look back on that and be like, shit. <laughs> why, why, why did we overlook that thing? They made quite a few of them. They made like 12, just shy of, yeah. just over 1,200, sorry. Um, but you got to look at this thing and think, this came out at the same time as the Enzo, which are 2 million quid. Yeah. And my experience in an Enzo is they're just not impressive at all. Yeah. They like, they're stylistically at the time they were cool and they got a, a V12 in, sweet. But they're connected to a very early generation single clutch gearbox, and dynamically they're just a bit compromised, and, yeah. and they're big, and the visibility sucks. And yeah, whereas I think to sit here and see an Enzo at like two million and a Carrera GT at six hundred thousand makes me think that I, I know which one I'd sooner have. Yeah. And I just think that in in three or four years time there'll be one mil instead of six hundred grand. That's what I think. <laughs> anyway, so. So I've got one final question. Yeah. Which is, if you could drive one car 
for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a 500 pound van okay. or whatever so I can, to, I can have to a, move a house. practical beta to move a fridge if yeah. I need to but it's literally like 500 quid I'd have a GT3 yeah. GT3 any particular the, like the current GT3 like your one yeah I think I would um, I would I, I I love the RS but for something that I gotta drive all the time like mm. I loved big wing and everything and it's all and it's all cool and whatnot. but there's something about just the GT3 that particularly I mean it, like an RS4 litre would be would be great but for every day there is something about okay I just want to put this in automatic now and just like mush through traffic mm. it does that you know like maybe we've got Waze on Apple CarPlay now I know I mean, like that's a thing like that's a thing like it's got Apple CarPlay and the sound system is sweet I've got the folding buckets so it's like you can stick stuff in the back yeah uh, it's way quick enough it sounds sick they look good they don't really date um I'd have a GT3. Yeah. 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 Super cool. That's pretty much it. <laughs> That's pretty much it, man. Yeah. That's pretty much it. It's funny. You ask... So you're guest number four now. Right. And a lot of people have had GT3s in, they, yeah, in there. Like, or like a singer or something. You know, yeah, like yeah. Sort of thing. For sure. Porsches for some reason. They just tick the boxes, man. They're really good. And they work. They're and really, really good. Kid. That, that bit about uh, when you were saying like sort of undervalued or like most value in a car yeah. you always hear the, the sort of I haven't heard it recently but people go oh you can you know for the price of a very one you can get 50 G- Nissan GTR, GTRs yeah, with yeah. 4,000 horsepower and it's it's that bit where it meets in the middle if you've got mm. performance that's Refined. real horsepower yeah like I, I remember it was on a gumball or something on an autobahn with the mm. Car throttle guys and their GTR behind. I think mm. that was meant to be 650 or 700 horsepower. Mm. My G3 RS is 444 horsepower. Mm. And on the autobahn from 100 to 190, they were exactly the same. Oh my God, and that's amazing. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you might be able to put 800 in your in your GTR, but yeah. it may not be as quick. Okay, 100%, they, you can make very fast cars. But it's, it it's, that, fast. it's that whole complete thing. Like you get in the, the door, it feels like a quality experience. Everything you touch it's is nice. It's the complete thing, yeah. It's, it's, I think the, the, when you read, I find this a lot with, with um, take the 600LT, for example. I find when you read the specs on paper, it doesn't sound like a big deal. But often these things, I find almost without exception with these things, they're so much greater than the sum of their parts. Hmm. So you read, oh, they've only upped the horsepower by this much, and oh, they put stiffer anti-roll bars. Yeah. They've done this a little bit lower. And, well, but when, you, when, here, when all of those things click together, it's like, oh, man. Like, <laughs> what is this witchcraft? Like, there's some, like, tweakery. And then I always remember, before I spend, start, started spending some time in proper race cars I always used to think like how far can we go man? like how far like how much further can we push these things and then when you spend some time in a race car you're like way further <laughs> like way further what, one thing one thing that has definitely um, I, I guess highlighted to me the most now or whatever is when you read it's like a race car for the road I'm like no bro yeah <laughs> it's, it's no. not it's this it's just a way more capable version of what it was yeah like, that's it like, and you race don't, cars you don't want so next level. that race car you do road. not want a race car for the road mostly because like they're just so so compromised <laughs> yeah. like they're stiff as hell and loud and no sound editing and no creature comforts like no nav no no nothing 
but they're really quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. It's funny, passengering in, passengering in, mm. a, in a fast race car, mm. um, and I've passengered quite a bit in, in my Radical, mm. uh, whilst I've been having getting tutored and stuff like that. And you do a couple of laps as a passenger, and then obviously you drive it, whatever. As soon as you get into something else, like a road car, like a 911 Turbo or whatever, on track... You're right. you, feel, like you feel like you're driving a Rolls Royce, like and, and you, you also become a much. I think you become a much more chilled out passenger 100%. because they slam yeah. on the brakes. You're like, oh, that wasn't yeah. even that hard. That's it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, accelerate. Oh, you know, it. None yeah. of it. Nothing feels like it's. Yeah, race car stuff scales entirely, entirely differently. Uh, it's like hitting the brakes, isn't it? It's the it's normally the brakes. Okay, the 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 uh, one car that I've driven recently, which kind of was a race car for the road, was the Senna. Yeah, that is as close as I've probably been to a race car for the road. I mean, it's still got speakers in it and air conditioning. You yeah, know, it's got stuff. It's got stuff, but the brakes were actually race car brakes, Serious. like actually race car brakes, which is fantastic. Yeah, very cool. Just needs some slicks on it, and then and a different body shell style entirely. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> complete exterior revamp, but complete exterior revamp and some different tires. That was one of, we could go on forever, but that was one of the funny things for me about the Senna was it's so capable. I mean, eight hundred kilograms of downforce, like they like, like really you can't get your head around that. Really, in terms of like the application of that, yeah, and. But it's got road tyres on. I mean, you might as well set them on fire. You know, yeah, you might as well set them things. on fire. Because when I drove it, it lasted about 10, 10 laps. And then it was like, new set of tyres. You know, it was mm. just completely done. So it's a, it's a weird thing. And you can't buy slicks for it. Because they've had to put a degree of um, uh, road components within the suspension setup. <clears throat> which if you had that much load through slicks and 800 yeah. kilograms of downforce, it would break the suspension. That's that's a good way of contextualising it. 800 kilograms of downforce, actually. So it's a funny car, that one. It's a fantastic track day car, but um, yeah, might as well buy a race car. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.